This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Game Book Layout. Johnny Toe. Robin's Laws Revisited. And Joan of Arc. rattle of dice and the rustle of character sheets tell us we have once more entered the friendly confines of the gaming hut and behind the maps stapled up to the walls and the miniature orcs and dragons and dragonettes and dragon orcs bestrewing the table we have come to a realization that many of these books are actually quite attractive robin would you like to take us through the magical world of game layout yeah i thought we would look at game layout, both in terms of its aesthetic development and as a functional part of the learning and reference process of accessing a role-playing game book. Role-playing games, of course, are uh, in their fifth uh, decade now. So if you go back to the early days of role-playing, they were very simply handmade products of a cottage industry, uh, laid out the old-fashioned way, what with the letra set and the uh, typesetting and whatever else went on back in that day of steam and dinosaurs and monkeys roaming the earth. Uh, and you can sort of trace the development of the desktop revolution once you get past the sort of uh, classic two columns of type with stuff, pictures glued in as we get into the uh, mid-90s. Everybody goes uh, crazy, what with their... Uh, uh, Photoshop and all their textures, and you begin to see the waves of more intentional conscious design work their way through into gaming books once the tools become available and as a raft of really talented people begin to access those tools. So, for example, the graphic design for uh, Dungeons & Dragons 3rd Edition really kind of establishes a template for what a D&D or D&D descended game looks like. And even today, all of the designs that come after that are trying to evoke that experience are in some way a comment on that really influential graphic design, which, uh, and of course it's uh, Wizards of the Coast and it's Prime. So the number of people who put this together is a vast team of people. Uh, John Shind. Shet, I'm undoubtedly pronouncing that incorrectly, Sean Glenn, Sherry Floyd, Don Murick, and a typographer, uh, Nancy Walker. So uh, that's a, basically that's all, more than twice the number of people who work in the Pelgrane office were just <laughs> responsible for putting together the graphic design for that incredible project. And although people have to various degrees tried to get away from that graphic design, and you will see a lot of graphic designs uh, wrinkle their noses at the amount of stuff going on in that design with its uh, ornate borders and its textures under the uh, lettering. Nonetheless, it sort of stamped our visual impression uh, going forward of what a D&D or D&D descended game looks like. Are there other uh, sort of noteworthy uh, graphic designs that you would point to, Ken, as sort of central to the graphic design role-playing canon? Well, I would I would say actually that the graphic design on second edition is a little underrated. It's not uh, as sort of handsome and pulled together like third edition was, but it's it's an attractive piece of work. Uh, I'm not as fond of the actual art in it, but I think the graphic design was sort of a, a leap forward. Obviously. In our field in role-playing games, graphic design is really before and after Vampire the Masquerade, which uh, really raised the bar for what you could do. And remember, but that was back when it was a black-and-white book. It came out in a, a fairly crumbly-bound paperback edition. But from the cover all the way through, that was a game that really was selling as much the feel and the experience of playing it as it was selling anything else about... Uh, the game and that the feel of the of playing the game and the feel of the game world were actually designed to interrelate with each other. So where, for example, D and D second was just clean and good looking and it used a good font and it, it weighted everything correctly and it was really one of the first books out there. I think maybe some of the early Shadowrun books also looked pretty good. It was almost sort of modernist in comparison with what has come after. Right. Yeah. And it, it was just you know 
a real professional book that you could, you know, show someone without being horribly embarrassed. But Vampire the Masquerade really, I think, in in a way that no other game had until then, with the possible exception of Star Wars, which, of course, could cheat by using a bunch of pictures of Star Wars. Um, but it really brought out the the feel in everything that they did, from the typography to the, you know, art direction to the graphic elements in the in the margins, the, the amount of white space, the, the degree to which you would look into it, and it felt like you were looking into some sort of wrought iron front yard in New Orleans or whatever it happened to be, and that this really sort of stood in my mind at the time, and I think it's still in my mind, as one of those before and after moments. I mean, again, you can look at individual talents, you can look at what uh, Jeff Koch did for Steve Jackson Games, and, uh, you know, after Jeff left uh, SJG, Steve Jackson Games sort of regressed to the mean in a sense of graphic design. It didn't become hideous, but it wasn't as interesting as it was when, when Jeff Koch worked there. You can, you know, pick individual uh, artists, and then as we've seen the uh, indie game scene expand, a lot of those guys also have really good graphic design shops. Someone like uh, Luke Crane's books also look beautiful. I don't know if he does his own graphic design, but his whoever he, he has do it, it are, is really good. Vincent Baker does, I think, a lot of his own design. And his uh, Jason Morningstar and Daniel Morningstar. Solis are both triple threats yeah. in terms of their visual design as well as their game design. And I think ben also that, that the appreciation of graphic design in general is something that people are not necessarily aware of, or they're not necessarily even clear on the distinction between who did the illustrations, which we talked about in a previous segment, and the actual process of designing the page layout and making sure that the way that the page uh, looks when you open the book says something about the property that it's trying to evoke, creates a sense of emotional association, but also makes things easy to see and find, either as you are learning the rules on your first go-through or trying to reference things on the way through. So even as a particular illustration can serve as a memory aid, you know, I know that the knockdown rules are near the picture of the Ankeg. Uh, at the same time, you can say, oh, well, I, re I remember where all the tables are. They're just sort of here. And the art of even just laying, uh, placing a table or uh, deciding where the sidebar goes is very subtle and something that you don't notice the way that you notice a painting of a space marine fighting a stone alien, but at the same time is very vital both to your sense of pleasure at looking at and paging through the book and also your ability to play it afterwards. Yeah, I think that you can sort of go a little... I mean, certainly a lot of the later White Wolf books sort of tilted over to the other side of the universe and became less utile as game supplements as they remain sort of you know, objets de art. And so you, you run into that problem a good deal as a, uh, as a, as a publisher, certainly. And then you run into it more seriously as a, as a guy who attempts to use it. The problem with, and I think you've talked about this before, maybe not on the podcast, but it's the thing you always say is that role playing games have to be written both as a technical manual and as a teaching aid. And that those two, uh, goals are antithetical in terms of how to structure the book. I think that in terms of graphic design, a lot of times you run into the problem that making the book beautiful and evocative sometimes gets in the way of what you were talking about, making it just usable as a game book, making sure that all of the, you know, uh, rotes are the same layout or the same place in the book, or that all of the ex examples are called out in the same way. And if you've picked your overall template well, that's good, but you wind up sort of stifling, I think, some of the creativity that goes into a, a slightly wilder book where you can say, no, I'm going to I'm gonna throw in a, a, a graphic element here that, that really sort of wakes it up. And I think that, again, that's why it's an art, because you keep going back to it and trying to uh, change things and, and tweak your, your balances, and, and that every individual balance is going to slightly look off to the next generation of artists and designers. I think you pointed a really interesting phenomenon, which is that graphic design can theoretically get in the way, not only when it is not so great graphic design, as you sometimes saw in sort of some of the third tier companies in the mid to late 90s, when it was like, I've got Photoshop and I'm going to use it, you know, where things went kind of texture crazy for a while. And now we're seeing a pulling back to a, a cleaner 
approach, which mirrors just the general trend in graphic design back to a sort of retro modernism that is uh, simpler and more elegant on the page. So, for example, uh, Christian Knudsen's graphic design for Hill Folk and Blood on the Snow, which, of course, is currently ingrained on my uh, retinas after looking uh, at it and marveling at how lovely it is, is very um, clean and simple and elegant and says something about drama system and says something about the sort of aesthetic of the game that you'll be having, but is also uh, really pulled back and, for example, uses a lot of white space and uh, lets the text breathe so that you will be looking, your eyes drawn to the text, and hopefully you'll be remembering the text as you read it and not so much necessarily distracted subliminally by a lot of other elements. And that sort of harkens back to the sort of very simple, clean, classic Chaosium house style, which sort of said, hey, this is a Chaosium book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of us have a nostalgia for that. And it is interesting to see sort of a new wave of people coming along and bringing contemporary graphic design skills to that simpler aesthetic. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I remember when I got cult way back in the day, uh, the, the, I forget which edition it was. It may have been second edition, but it was the black and white edition that was very clean and spare and Scandinavian looking. And I remember looking at that and thinking, man, that's a book that looks better than 90% of the full color books that I own in, you know, certainly in the role-playing space. And sort of that may have been the book that sort of woke me up to how you can use, you know, not just you know, page weights and white space, but also things like italics and bold in the process of, of writing the book to allow your eye to travel over the over the text. And when I wrote Knights Black Agents, I tried to do that to an extent to take advantage of the fact that it was going to be a graphically produced thing as well as, you know, just a collection of words on a page. And I think that, uh, you know, Chris Huth certainly took my pointers at how I thought the book should read on the page and ran with it for a for a touchdown and a half. The Scandinavians have a leg up in graphic design because their countries are so beautifully graphic designed. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> if, you, if you look at the storefronts, it's like every storefront has a beautiful font and, uh, you know, all the signage you see in public is, is really quite lovely. And, uh, uh, and then if you go to a North American city, uh, even a big city and look at, you know, the typical signs that are all around you, you just, uh, want to uh, rent a horde of uh, Scandinavian sign makers for a couple of years to fix everything up. I don't know whether they have uh, punitive laws for bad public graphic design over there, but uh, they certainly are uh, steeped in it somehow. Yeah, they've got they've got kind of an interesting approach. There's I, I don't know if you've seen uh, Operation Fallen Reich, the uh, the game that uh, the Swedes did that's a... Uh, that's Christian's game. That's Christian's game, exactly. It's a game of... Uh, comedy anglophile horror set in world war ii i guess but the graphic design is perfect it is letter perfect 1939 graphic design it's very much the notion that if uh they had desktop publishing in 1939 and they put this book together and it fell through a time warp that's what it would look like we tried that very similar sort of feel with the original series star trek book for last unicorn that we wanted it to look like bob justman had knocked it out on his non-existent desktop computer back in 1968 and uh, had uh, let it come through a a wormhole to the present day. And another challenge of graphic design as as someone writing this stuff is that role-playing rules are by their nature non-linear. That the and this goes back to the idea you talked about, about the tension between learning the game and referring to the game, but there's also just the fact that a well-designed set of role-playing rules the rules all relate to one another, and it is actually quite challenging to present them in any one teaching order because you have to refer to stuff that's happening further on in the text, and often the dreaded sidebar, uh, which graphic designers fear and loathe, mm-hmm. but which I uh, cling to as an important tool of text presentation, is really essential in presenting sort of tangential ideas that kind of need to relate to this other idea, even though they don't flow in linear fashion, whether that's some sort of exception to the rules or some uh, sub-rule that you need in order to follow this broader explanation of a bigger uh, rule set, or also the all-important bits of design exegesis that explain 
you know, if the body of the main text is explaining what the rule is, you also, as a designer, often find yourself wanting to explain why the rule is that way. If you include both of those things together in the body text, it is confusing on both levels, both the learning level and the reference level, but there's still no other really obvious apparent way to do that. And so that's where the designer fear-inducing sidebar crops up. Yeah, I, I think that I've got a real admiration for people who can take the the kind of text that we produce, which is full of bullet points and full of things that all have to be in endless lists and that generally are going to look terrible. They've got sidebars like you talk about. They've got, um, you know, some things that are are going to have a bunch of white space, uh, like stat blocks and some things that are going to have no white space whatsoever, like uh, world history uh, write-ups. And that you're able to sort of dance with that, I guess, or or take those sorts of images and use them creatively to inspire you. And I look at someone like Fred Hicks, who is able to do that with uh, fairly unprepossessing <laughs> rule sets in terms of what they could look like, like Hero or like Fate. And the books that he comes out with look terrific. And then when he's able to work on something like the Dresden Files, where it's got to have a sort of a crazy put together collagey look he he brings it to that level too and i'm not i mean i when i when i'm designing something it's usually in one or another part of my wheelhouse i guess and i think that a really good graphic designer certainly in our industry has to have a bunch of wheelhouses all connected by a series of habit trails because i'm not sure how you go from doing a spare clean graphic design to a anarchic clever graphic design using the same brain, much less uh, using the same set of, of, of design tools and the same set of expectations from the audience. Well, I think it's analogous probably to writing fiction and writing in a variety of different voices. Yeah. That you are uh, playing a role and part of the task of figuring out what your book is going to look like is assembling a visual vocabulary. So, uh, again, for example, with Hill Folk, we started with a process of just me finding images for Christian from, in this case, uh, ancient archaeology of the Levant, and just showing him images and putting him on a drop mark. And from there, uh, through the magic alchemy of uh, graphic design thinking, he transformed that into uh, not only the main Hillfolk style, but also the uh, remainder of the Hillfolk book, which has all the series pitches in it, and then Blood on the Snow has a variation on that design that doesn't have the specific uh, ancient Levant uh, style markers on it, but is both different and maintains a unity at the same time. So that's something that I think is very subtle, and, and that's uh, when you hear games critiqued, you rarely hear much about the graphic design other than this looks good or this looks sloppy or I feel that I'm being ripped off because there's all this extra white space in it, which is less of an issue now, A, that we have uh, PDFs, so you're not really selling people pages as much as you uh, used to. And B, as grognards are getting older, the virtues of having clean, readable text <laughs> in a larger font size <laughs> with lots of little memory blocks in between them is, uh, I think, becoming clearer even to uh, people who when they were uh, 22 and uh, pinching every gaming penny and just wanted everything in four-point type and stuff scrawled in the margins uh, may have changed their tune a little bit of that. But it's really something that I think has a subliminal effect as far as game utility is concerned, but just because it's a subliminal effect doesn't mean it's not a great effect. Yeah, I think that um, it's it's fun also to talk to people who know what they're doing about this stuff. I, every now and again, I'll talk to... Uh, Fred Hicks. I haven't actually gotten a chance to talk to Daniel Solis, but he'd be another good uh, guy to talk about about what you know what elements are 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 looking good. With my dad having been an architect, I was sort of raised to be able to recognize graphic design, sort of a nature nurture combo. But in terms of actual skills, I think I can probably keep a graphic design off the rocks, but I certainly couldn't put together anything that was actually interesting or even necessarily utile. I would just know enough to. Uh, keep it from looking god-awful. Although, if you look at some of the Nephilim books I laid out, what, you can maybe even make an argument that I can't do that. So My dad was a draftsman, so uh, maybe there's some sort of secret DNA connection between uh, architecture and draftsmanship and game design. 
I think that uh, we are on the verge of a dizzying, vertiginous new topic for the gaming hut, so perhaps we should tiptoe away from the edge of that cliff and move to the next one. Our summer of Chinese film continues with another check-in at the Cinema Hut, once again inspired by the great retrospective of Chinese cinema that is playing at Toronto's TIFF Lightbox. In this case, I thought I would chat a bit with Ken about the films and career of the Hong Kong master Johnny Toe, uh, who was not only presenting several of his classic films, films that are favorites of mine and ones that I therefore did not go and see again, but he was doing a separate Q&A event and also introduced his new film, Drug War, which is about to get a North American release in early August. And Ken, if I know anything at all about you, I know that you will really enjoy Drug War. It's one of Johnny Toe's top-notch films and uh, one that is uh, right up your alleyway. Fantastic. I am a big Johnny Toe fan. There have been, I think I, you can count on the fingers of one finger the number of Johnny Toe films that I was actually disappointed with as opposed to uh, loved to distraction. So I'm, I look forward to a, jo a Johnny Toe film that you recommend. So the premise of Drug War and the thing that separates it out from First of all, all other Chinese films, and particularly uh, Johnny Toe's oeuvre, is that it is a tough crime drama of spiraling uh, chaos and gunfire set in mainland China. And so this is his first film in mainland China, and unlike a lot of directors who uh, start working on the mainland or with the mainland, which is becoming increasingly essential as the mainland becomes a bigger market and as mainland money is necessary to make films. But there are all sorts of roadblocks in the way of someone who, like Johnny Toe, makes taut, tense, nihilistic, uh, often crime movies in that the mainland censors are very, very sensitive to the idea of depicting a criminal underworld at all. So the process by which they got this script approved was undoubtedly fraught, but is in the end very much a Johnny Toe film. And so it's basically follows a tough as nails mainland narcotics officer played by Hong Lei Sun and his hard charging team of unrealistically dedicated police detectives mm -hmm. uh, as they uh, try to crack a methamphetamine ring. They have captured one of the manufacturers of meth, and you can get the death penalty for having 50 grams of methamphetamine in mainland China. And here's a guy whose entire factory of it just blew up, and he's got another factory on the go and a whole uh, gang of associates, including a group of Hong Kong gangsters who are coming to the mainland to strike a deal with a local distributor. So it has really fascinating sympathy shifts throughout the film and some great typical Johnny Toe action sequences. And so uh, if you are able to uh, get to a, a cinema that is uh, playing this film, I highly recommend that you do so. Or if you are plugged into a source of Hong Kong import DVDs and Blu-rays, which if you have the internet, you are. Uh, it is already available on uh, Blu-ray, and so I suggest that anybody who has the chance to chase that down. So I thought that we would talk a bit about the overall career uh, of Johnny Toe. He started out in the classic late 80s, early 90s heyday of Hong Kong cinema, making films that were very much part of that style. He made All About All Long, which is basically the Hong Kong Kramer versus Kramer with Chow Yun-Fat and Sylvia Chang. It was uh, his first film. Uh, he also made, uh, as a co-director, The Heroic Trio, which is a classic sort of melding of heroic bloodshed and crazy superhero urban modern fantasy stuff. That was the first uh, Johnny Toe film that I saw was Heroic Trio. And as you follow his filmography, there is a real shift in his uh, filmmaking that occurs 
uh, with a film called The Mission in 1999, although uh, that was a huge year for him. And he also made a, another couple of films that I would strongly recommend, uh, Where a Good Man Goes and also Running Out of Time. But in The Mission, he establishes a very sort of cool, quiet shootout style and overall atmosphere that then goes on to characterize the rest of his work and his best, most distinctive films. And in the Q&A, he revealed something that I found, well, he revealed a bunch of things that I find quite mind-boggling, but one of them was sort of an object lesson and why it's always a mistake to look at a creator's work and to infer from that things about their intention. Because if you look at the mission, you would think, oh, he's trying to create a whole new style of Hong Kong cinema that refers back not only to Howard Hawks, but also to Jean-Pierre Melville, and is a much cooler style, uh, much more deadpan uh, to take away uh, not only the crazy melodrama of the 80s, early 90s period, but also the crazy action where, as in a John Woo movie, there's all these flying uh, steady cam shots and everybody gets yanked away on wires when they're hit with a gunshot. And here in the mission, there's this great sort of sense of cool and the sense of a, a group dynamic that you get again in Howard Hawks. And the action reflects that because the shootouts are very slow and careful about their, you know, taking, uh, stopping to pause and wait and take a single shot. Uh, there's a sort of a great set piece in the middle of the mission uh, in a fight in a after hours uh, shopping mall that really typifies that style. Well, in fact, the reason that he arrived at that style in the first place is this was during the Asian financial crisis. He could afford only a limited amount of film stock and had to completely redesign his visual style and the choreography of his action sequences hmm. in order to account for the fact that he only had these little short ends of film to shoot on. Ah, if, if only Tarkovsky had had a financial crisis to deal with. Uh, yes, you would think that being <laughs> making films in Soviet Russia would have been enough, but, yeah, uh, but they, nope. they had enough film stock for that long shot of the uh, guy driving down the street in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, in, <laughs> in Stalker, I think that is. Um, so, uh, and from there, he uh, he completely redevelops his style and the mission becomes sort of the template for his other films, the greatest of which tend to be various laconic or doom laden crime flicks. Uh, he also said that, you know, when he goes to France, they say, Oh, you make film noir. And he says, what's that? <laughs> and they say, and your films are obviously influenced by Jean-Pierre Melville. And it's, oh, well, I've seen some Alain Delon movies. Maybe I've seen a Melville film. And, Again and again, as the uh, moderator of the Q&A asked him questions about the evolution of his technique and the intention behind that, he was entirely focused on the practical issues. Now, part of that, I think, was the behind uh, the language barrier because everything had to be translated. Mm -hmm. And also, like I think a lot of uh, Asian creators, he tends to say exactly what it is that he wants to say about things and doesn't necessarily worry too much about being directly responsive to the question as long as he has a great yarn and he had a lot of great sort of production yarns. Right. But uh, just as whenever my stuff is reviewed and I see someone say, well, obviously uh, Laws is trying to do this. And the thing that I'm obviously trying to do is I'm always a million miles away from what I thought my intentions were. Uh, here's another example of a situation in which the uh, creator's perspective and the critical apparatus that you're set up to bring to bear on it have a little to no relationship to one another. Did you see the uh, Stanley Kwan film Everlasting Regret? Uh, yes, I did. Yeah, and he was actually at the uh, showing that I saw it at, at the Chicago Film Festival. And it's a film that it, it takes place, for those of you who are not Raman and Ken, in uh, Shanghai over the course of Shanghai's turbulent 20th century. And there is a woman who sort of embodies Shanghai, and all the things that happen in Shanghai happen to her. And the film is shot almost entirely in interiors. There's no exteriors. I think there's one shot in an alley somewhere. And I asked him, did you shoot it all inside because you wanted to focus on the interiority of the character? Was it about the fact that Shanghai is, is a claustrophobic society? What were you saying when you shot the whole movie, which is in theory about a city, inside an apartment? And he said, it's because 
you can't shoot a frame of film in Shanghai that looks anything like it looked in 1920. Yeah, if you want to set a movie in in <laughs> period Shanghai, you've got to build it on a soundstage. Yeah, that's, that, that, that made me sort of wonder, you know, if uh, Carol Reed just uh, lit uh, the third man that way because the power grid was so terrible in Vienna that he could only use half the lights at any given time or something like that. And in fact, that's very often the, the case that... Uh, in one case, the sort of shot that the moderator thought sort of indicated the whole future trajectory of Johnny Toe's career, this uh, crane shot in the lobby of a hotel turned out to be the camera placed in the glass elevator of the hotel going <laughs> upwards because he couldn't afford a crane at that point. Right. Speaking of crane shots, if anyone wants to see the incredible brilliance of Johnny Toe, uh, get a hold of his film called Breaking News, uh, which is about the way... The police department uses a media strategy to deal with a uh, accidental hostage taking by uh, bank robbers uh, or star store robbers or whoever it is in an apartment building. And the opening of this that sort of throws everything in motion, there's a an eight minute uh, continuous shot one take but it's a take on a crane that goes up one side of the car up another level up to the second floor where the uh, bandits are hidden out back down as the uh, a newspaper falls on the car that the cops are in waiting for a stakeout and then there's an entire shootout all shot with the camera on a crane swiveling around in one take in, in eight minutes so i mean as astounding as the similar one-take shots in, say, something like the beginning of The Player or the entering the club sequence in Scorsese's Goodfellas. This is an entire fight scene with choreography, and it is done so fluidly and changes perspective so many times. Unlike those ones, you're not going, wow, what a great one-shot. You don't even realize that mm. it's a one-shot until it's pointed out to you. And so that that's just, a, you know, if you want to see in eight minutes... Uh, why Toe is one of the great directors working today, uh, get breaking news. Are there other uh, favorite Johnny Toe films that you would recommend that people check out? I, I think that everyone needs to see sort of his uh, his great gangster, you know, I don't know if it's technically a trilogy, but Election, Triad, Election, and Triangle, the the, the movies that are that are all... Uh, and, and to my mind, the, the French director that he reminded me most of, except a million times better was Luc Besson. And I love Luc Besson, but Election and Election 2 are like, oh, this is what God wants a Luc Besson movie to look like when I when I saw those. I mean, they're just so incredibly, you know, visceral in all the, you know, ways that you want a crime film to be visceral, but it's never cluttered, it's never clumsy, everything is perfectly laid out, and the level of sort of political involvement to the main character, that the communist China is essentially serving as a uh, as as a mank for the mafia in the Godfather films in in in, in election the, the the just the depth of the script is so great as well which is not always the case even with the really good chinese crime films that's the thing about johnny toe is that his films are uh, very tautly constructed unlike say luc besson which are his films are have that sort of sense of propulsive percussive action impact, but they're sort of, the scripts are always all over the map. So you mm. want to hear the other mind-blowing thing, Ken? Yes, I, I want to hear nothing but mind-blowing things about Johnny Toe. He shoots scriptless. So what, he's like Brisson, it's all improvised? Just go in there and hold up the bank. He, he must have an outline, and, you know, they, the moderator didn't drill down exactly how far to how scriptless it is, but just like uh, other, and there are other Hong Kong filmmakers who do this, in part because uh, they sometimes have to make films piecemeal uh ptu mm -hmm. another great film about a cop who loses his gun classic storyline is one of those ha all happens in one night of chaos movies that was shot over a period of two years <laughs> in in which he had to hope that nobody had a significant weight gain or changed their hair too much right or, or facial injury right and he was again he was constructing that as he went along now wong kar wai also improvises his movies, but you can tell when you see them because they're very moody and disconnected and uh, kind of non-linear. They're beautiful and masterful, but they feel improvised. Yeah, that's what an improvised movie is supposed to feel like, is Wong Kar Wai. Right. Yeah, but for Johnny Toe to be scriptless, that's like being told Hitchcock shot scriptless. The, the sounds of Jaws detaching from the upper parts of skulls in that house when he said that, it was just uh, incredibly 
uh, boggling. Now, in some cases, there's got to be something, right? So, for drug war, he mm-hmm. had to get approved by the Chinese censors. Yeah. And so, and he did talk about having a script for that. But you can't look at drug war versus exiled or PTU and go, well, this one is obviously made in a significantly different way than the mm-hmm. others. Um, just as a little correction, a Triangle is actually a anthology film with three different uh, directors and it's okay. not a direct sequel to uh, election and triad election as it's known in its North American DVD release or election two as it's known mm-hmm. domestically. And apparently he is working on an, an election three. That must've been what I was thinking of was that cause I knew that there was a third election and I was looking at the list in Wikipedia and it's like triangle. And I remember I've seen triangle and I like triangle, but I forgot, I guess that it was an anthology film. Because I saw it years and years ago. Um, I would also recommend Exiled, which is an unacknowledged sequel to the mission. The characters have different names, but it's <laughs> clearly the same cast of characters. So it's, it's like Spaghetti Westerns, where it's clearly the same the same people. They're just... Uh, yes, it's Blondie or right. you mm-hmm. know, Tuco and Tuco one. And and they have different names. And but it's, well, in that one, they have to be different characters because they, they keep dying. <laughs> they keep dying. Um, I would also recommend uh, Sparrow, uh, which is, is a great pickpocket movie. There's a great... Uh, set piece with uh, umbrellas. There's Life Without Principle, which is his uh, satire of financial... Well, it's really more of a drama. A drama mm-hmm. of financial shenanigans where there's a sequence about selling somebody an investment plan that's just as uh, suspenseful and riveting as any of his action sequences. The, uh, the the umbrella sequence in Sparrow is a tour de force. It's one of those scenes that you just would watch over and over and over and over and over again just to see it. It's like the... Um, surveillance sequence in uh, the third born movie where they're going through Waterloo station. And speaking of surveillance sequences among the jaw dropping notions, the notion that I in the sky, which is perhaps the greatest moving surveillance film, as opposed to static surveillance film, like the conversation ever made the notion that that was shot scriptless is just mind boggling. It's impossible to believe that I in the sky was shot scriptless. It's also impossible to believe when you watch it, that there are movies that good that, you know, the, the existence of that movie has not actually set Brett Ratner on fire. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if anything could uh, create that level of spontaneous combustion. Well, if, if, if I in the Sky doesn't do it, nothing can. And uh, Johnny Toe, in addition to making these films that he talks about as his personal films, um, also makes a lot of commercial movies to keep his production company uh, Milky Way uh, funded and going. And these tend to be romantic comedies of all things. And I think that he is right when he indicates that most of these are not particularly interesting. But there is one, if you can track it down, that is fun, called Yesterday Once More, which is about a divorced couple of jewel thieves and uh, how they do or don't get back mm, together. That's nice. And it has that beautiful sort of uh, sense of glam and style. And so I would describe that as uh, Toe's uh, To Catch a Thief. Right. And actually... The um uh, the the romantic comedy that he made the same year as he made Life and Life Without Principle, his other financial crisis movie, Don't Go Breaking My Heart. In, in that sense, he's following a formula. You pretty much know exactly what's going to happen from day one, from moment one. But he's following it perfectly. It's a perfectly executed formula film, and the formula in this case is a romantic comedy, not a crime movie. But it just again, you look at something like that, and you're just amazed at the level of discipline that uh, Johnny Toe brings to. To a film. Yes, he said somewhat abashedly that he's working on Dunko Breaking My Heart 2. Mm. But uh, Johnny Toe is a case where, you know, his self deprecated hack work is better than most people's intentional yeah. <laughs> genius uh, movies. Yes. Um, so I think that uh, gives people uh, lots of titles to uh, go out and uh, uh, snap up. I don't know what the streaming availability of these is, but you can certainly uh, find any of them at your favorite source of. Hong Kong import DVDs and Blu-rays. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Chris Shorb asks Ken and Robin, are Robin's laws of good game mastering still relevant today? 
and I will give you a solid American dollar if you say nope, and we move on to the next hut right now. <laughs> well, my my ever aching need for cash is not quite enough uh, for me to say that. So uh, for those of you who do not know this slim volume, which was published by Steve Jackson Games, it came out in 2002. I was actually a little surprised when I looked it up today that it was actually that late. I was um, remembering uh, writing it a little earlier. And its thesis, uh, in amongst all sorts of other practical GMing advice is that role-playing games should be entertaining for everybody involved, that there is no right way to role-play outside of the dynamic of your individual group in general or even on that night, so that whatever is fun and satisfying for you to do in the moment is not to be gainsayed by anybody's theory of what role-playing gaming ought to be, and that a pivotal tool in moving toward that goal of making things entertaining for everybody at the table is as an exercise to look at what the players who you know and you've been playing with for a little while seem to want based on their observed behavior. And then there's a system of types that it presents you, uh, which uh, it is strikes me over years of observation that there are notable sorts of types or taste groups that players uh, fall into. And then as a first step to understanding what it is your players want in order to give them more of it and to not give them the things that they don't want is to sort of think about the extent to which they match these various types. Now, in reality, you will wind up going beyond process of assigning people types and you realize that, you know, most people are sort of mix of different tastes or people can switch and pivot from one thing to another, uh, depending on what the game is and depending on what the night is. But just the process of uh, having some sort of system to think about what people do at the table and what that implies about what they want is something that I still think is perfectly valid today. Now, if I was to write this book again, 11 years later, uh, first I would, uh, wouldn't have gone for a flat fee. I would have gone for a royalty. <laughs> Go for uh, a royalty. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I had, cause when I was writing, it was like, ah, nobody's going to buy this. I'll just go with a flat rate. Um, that, uh, you know, certainly over the years, it's one of the things that people most mention when they talk to me about uh, things that I've done. And that, so I know and, you know, and it hasn't dropped off in terms of people mentioning that. that and unless people are deliberately coming up to me and uh, lying about having found this book helpful, I will I will assume that they did. Um, but obviously, if I was to uh, write it today, it would have something of a different flavor. The examples uh, would be different. There are ways in which it would have to account for its own influence, because I think it did in some small ways sort of uh, help point people toward things, in large part because I then wrote an equivalent section of the uh, third edition Dungeons & Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide 2, uh, which introduced that concept to a wider audience, and then that was taken up again with a different categorization system that James Wyatt included in fourth edition D&D. So a lot of the things that it says, um, even at the time, one of the comments was, uh, this is all sort of obvious stuff, except that nobody has articulated it before. Well, today, the state of what obvious stuff would be would be different than it is mm -hmm. uh, today in, in large part because there have been different aesthetic movements in different directions that, whose influence you would have to take into account that there, you know, trad gaming is no longer a giant indivisible continent. Now there's another Island off the coast of, uh, narrative control style uh, indie games. And then now you've got the old school movement and there's all sorts of new tastes and expectations being brought up by those movements, which I would argue are to a certain extent, the Robin Laws player types all going off banding together and creating a, a design aesthetic together. So the assumptions that people bring to the table will be different and some of the techniques will be different. But overall, I think the thesis is still uh, relevant today. Yeah, I, I think that that's certainly the case. I mean, I uh, when I read it, I had very much the, oh, he's just saying what everyone should already know. But that's the reaction I get when I read, you know, How to Cook Everything by Mark Bittman. And there's a reason that that's a great cookbook, because it tells you, yeah, you should know how to make chocolate chip cookies, and here's how to do it. If chocolate chip cookies and role-playing games are equivalent, and I believe that they are, then having the sort of, you know, basics that everyone should know laid out cleanly is a, it's a mitzvah. And I think that everyone should, uh, 
should stop reacting with stunned amazement that that happens in our field just like it happens in every other field of human endeavor. And unlike other fields of endeavor, there was also sort of a more of an external notion, I think, when it was written, that there were certain things that you had to do, a certain logic that you had to follow in terms of uh, what the realism would be or a commitment to the rule set, that there were external values that Mm -hmm. you had to meet, uh, and those were different from group to group, that there's things that you're obligated to do to make it a role-playing experience, even though nobody really liked them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think a big part of that book is just the part that says, you know, doctor, it hurts when I do this. Don't do that. Stop doing that. Yeah, the um, I think that that's sort of an interesting question. When I look at something like Robin's Laws, which is very much in the mainstream of how I game uh, and how I run games, and I think it's how a lot of people who are sort of on our side of the trad continent, on our coast, looking out over at that island with the occasional, uh, you know, uh, sailing visit to it for the uh, monsoons. Do you think that doing it again, you would have to sort of take into account the rise of deliberately adversarial play like you get in a lot of the OSR, where people are deliberately trying to recreate the romanticized notion that the DM is out to kill you with his traps and that you are engaged in a series of puzzle solvings and less sort of the types of uh, behaviors that you model in Robin's Laws? Or is it just like, no, all the tacticians have got their own game and you, you kids have fun with that? Well, I think it, do, it would certainly have to address that. And it would address that as you suggest, which is that this is a group of people all getting together and creating an aesthetic to explain for themselves what they think is fun. Mm-hmm. And so if you all sit down at the table and agree that you're all tacticians and you're looking to be tested by an adversarial GM, the GM is doing the Robin's Law's job Mm -hmm. by making it adversarial for you, by making it tough on you. But then the question is, what do you remove from the role-playing experience in order to make it the optimal old-school experience? And that might be all sorts of fancy-schmancy things that I tend to like, like... uh, you know, characterization and uh, narrative. And it may be things within the tradition of the way things were first done in the old school that still doesn't actually deliver the tactical adversarial experience you're looking for. And that's why I would, you know, sort of urge people in this hypothetical new version of the book to explore. Are you engaged in an exercise of nostalgia, as the critics of the movement often accuse? Or are you trying to hone in on certain aspects of that experience that you remember? And if so, what is the best way to create that experience? And are all of the tools we're using actually suited for that? So in order to answer that question, do you feel like you would have to run uh, a campaign's worth of OSR and then maybe a campaign's worth of uh, Monster Hearts and then a campaign worth of other games that are more focused out towards the individual arms of the Robin's Laws octopus? Or do you think that your experience running sort of the uh, head and ink-filled body of the octopus would still serve you in good stead as a writer and prescriber of game table activity? That might be just limited by practical concerns, because uh, my own group is not one that can instantly totally shift taste on the uh, drop of a dime mm-hmm. and it would be a matter of you know having to go in and drop in on a OSR group or or whatever that is and so it is more challenging as the tradition goes off in different directions and directions where people are deliberately demarcating lines between themselves and other people and i think i would also try to suggest that no matter what style you most identify with that you don't turn it into an ideology mm-hmm. where after an evening of actually having fun, you then convince yourself that you didn't have fun because it didn't match your intellectual framework. Or because, worse yet, that other people aren't having fun because they're not matching your ideology, which is, if anything, even less productive than convincing yourself you didn't have fun. Right. And that comes into the secret origins of the whole book was that it was inspired by the process of doing GMing panels, which you and I still do to the, to this day. Mm-hmm. And Inevitably, at some point in the Q&A, the question is, what do I do about this guy in my group who? And <laughs> is then, terrible. It's terrible. And it, of course, isn't that they're terrible. It's just that that person has a different set of tastes and isn't meshing with what it is that the GM assumes mm-hmm. is good role playing. And so my stock answer is always, well, actually, what you should do is facilitate some of that. And then, you know, maybe he will... Uh, 
calm down and get with the rest of the program, or at least you'll be giving him as much of his style of fun as everybody else around the table is getting. And that's where the book came from in the first place. And although those questions are less frequent at a super keener center like a Gen Con seminar, uh, the questions at a Gen Con seminar in 2013 tend to be of a higher order than that. I would like to believe that in some measure because of uh, this book and of the book of other designers who've written, written game design advice and try to sort of expand the corpus of technique because that's really what's most important to expand the hobby. Um, but if you go to a smaller center uh, where people are not steeped in the very newest news about how to roll, uh, run a role-playing game, that question still comes up. So uh, I guess that's another way of saying that, uh, yeah, I think the basic thesis of the book is absolutely still relevant. Yeah, you're like, what's his name in the Grapes of Wrath? Whenever anybody's exactly. enforcing a false paradigm of intellectual pleasure, I'll be there. <laughs> whenever anyone is shutting down tactical role play, I'll be there. Uh, when everybody is well actualing instead of yes anding, I'll be there. I'll be there. Little Tom Jode uh, role playing right, uh, right there for everybody. Uh, which reminds me, I gotta run out and uh, do some sharecropping, and I'll be right back for the next segment. And that next segment, we can hear the feeble yet increasingly powerful pulsing of the chronotons as the cobweb-covered time machine that Ken uses to go back in time in a segment we called Ken's Time Machine and rectify the time stream comes out of the garage after a long sojourn in the consulting occultist's uh, wing with uh, his look at Nazi occultism. We finally dispense with that uh, topic and are ready <laughs> to move on to another episode of Ken's Time Machine. So, uh, Time Incorporated has had a lot of time to think and to pile up suggestions for you during that uh, interregnum, and they would like you to uh, save uh, with as much uh, panache and or historical significance as possible, Jeanne de Pucelle, Joan of Arc. So, Ken, as you're preparing your dossier, perhaps you could help out our listeners who are driving or on a treadmill and don't have Wikipedia fired up with the basic 101 on the situation that you'll be about to go back in time to interfere with. Okay, I'm not sure how much I need to explain Joan of Arc. I think she's one of those people like Benjamin Franklin that you know of because you are vertical in the Western world. I think people know her, but they don't know the conflict uh, that she was in so much. Okay, the, the, the conflict that she's involved with is a war called the Hundred Years' War, which lasted about 114 years, and it was an argument over whether or not the King of England should be the King of France. Uh, the King of England said yes. The King of France, not so much. A typical kingly argument. A typical kingly argument made atypical by uh, it lasting 114 years and involving a number of insanely exterminative uh, battles that wiped out the fr flower of French chivalry four or five times in a row. But after they'd done that, it turned out that uh, the iron laws of demographics and speaking French came back to bite you and... The King of England just couldn't quite seal the deal and make himself King of France. Henry V, who was the uh, competent King of England, who won at Agincourt, uh, died and was unable to uh, prosecute the war. And it was in the hands of, I believe, the Duke of Bedford, who was uh, about as good as a guy named the Duke of Bedford probably is. <laughs> this guy had teamed up with the Burgundians, who were the uh, rulers of basically about a third of France in the uh, eastern uh, corridor of France there, and they had teamed up, and it basically, well, if I'm king of France, I'll only be king of half of France, and then you guys can be the princes of the other half of France, and the Bur Burgundians thought that that sounded like a good deal, so they teamed up to bag on uh, the uh, king of France, who was Charles VII, who was a fathead, even for a king of France, but who had demographic and positional advantages, and he also had the arm of the Lord God in the shape of Joan of Arc, who w just would not let him lose, uh, will, will she or nil she, she, depending on who you read, inspired or competently led, or both, the French armies breaking the Siege of Orleans and breaking the English uh, air of invincibility, and more to the point, 
destroying the uh, longbow uh, armies that had been the, uh, the the sort of the right cross of of the British for, of the English forces in France. So as they moved forward, they were fighting kind of for the first time. I mean, not really for the first time. Certainly, uh, the Black Prince depended more on heavy cavalry than he did on archers in a lot of the fights, but they were fighting on a more even battlefield against the French, and that was a mistake for them because they couldn't win without uh, the French charging into the odd longbow uh, volley every now and again because, again, their position uh, demographically and their position in terms of French nobles not particularly wanting to swear to the King of England meant that every time that they would win the peace or win the war, they would lose the peace in in the ensuing uh, generation or so. So Joan of Arc, having basically uh, shut down the um, uh, Siege of Orleans and uh, saved France yet again, uh, is leading a raid on the filthy Burgundians down near Compiègne and is outside the city of Compiègne when uh, the Burgundians manage to shuffle up some uh, reinforcements and start making life hot for Joan of Arc, but not as hot, obviously, as it would be later. So she, being a, a, a bold and superheroine type knight, took the position of honor, which was last person back into Compiègne, and the uh, the sort of castellan, I guess, of Compiègne, a guy named Guillaume de Flevy, panicked and shut the gates before Joan of Arc could get inside. And when you are trapped outside the gates with a bunch of Burgundians around you, there's pretty much only one thing that can happen, and she got captured uh, by the Burgundian army. And so she surrendered to uh, the Bastard of Vendome, which I think is one of the great middle-aged <laughs> names. Uh, it, it, if you look at... M- one of the great joys of military history is people's exciting and right. delightful names. And, and of Vendome, to distinguish him from all those other bastards. All the other bastards that were flighting around there. So is this a uh, a disappointing fizzle of a Kent's time machine, where all you have to do is go back and tell the guy to hold the gate open for another minute? Yeah, it, it, you sort of want to go back and, and suss out whether or not Guillaume de Flavy is... Uh, being a just sort of panicking or being a traitor, and that is something that exercises French uh, uh, historians down to this day. But certainly, with a few big goblets of sack in us, we can probably work out a a uh, understanding. And if he turns out to be a traitor, I'll just drink him under the table and have his second in command hold the gate open. And if that doesn't work, I'll just go down there with a big old um, uh, railroad spike and drive it right into the. Uh, into the gears so that the gate physically can't close until Jean gets in, and then uh, she'll be saved that way. It is it is a relatively low-cost intervention on, on my part, which is why I think I'm going to make it more fun. Uh, Time Incorporated always rewards points for panache. Right. And in this case, what I'm going to do is go to one of Jean's, uh, or Joan's, she's Joan to the English and Jean to the French, or Jean to the French, but I'll, I'll go to one of uh, Joan's uh, biggest fans, a incredibly powerful, incredibly rich knightly lord who was at the, at the time of Compiègne, he was off doing something else. He had been created a marshal of France and he was sort of um, sitting back and, and waiting for the war to fizzle out as, you know, again, he's an experienced military leader. He knows that the Siege of Orleans has broken uh, the, the, the back of the English and he does not f- see the immediate need to go uh, pester the Burgundians on the theory that they will fall apart when they're good and ready. So he's back at his um, uh, his castle when Joan is off raiding in Compiègne. And I think that with, you know, a proper degree of timing and a um, uh, suitably exciting entrance on my part, which can be easily arranged with, uh, you know, uh, lasers and, uh, and Moog synthesizers and such, I can appear to this uh, noble lord and get him to ride to the rescue in approved um, Batman style and save Joan of Arc, ideally by driving off the filthy Burgundians as uh, she has her back to the gates for a full and romantic uh, conclusion to the action film that is the Joan of Arc action film, as opposed to the sort of, um, oh, she's back in Compiègne, the Burgundians go home, and then nothing happens except Joan of Arc is still alive. Which is good, but it's not as good as saving the soul of Gilles de Rez, uh, Bluebeard, who is the French lord in with whom I plan to rescue uh, La Pucelle. So this is going to uh, turn him around? Mm-hmm. Because uh, he begins his career of Satanism and mass murder after Joan is betrayed and burned at the stake by the church. And 
it is not unreasonable to say that he looks at that proceeding and no angels come down to rescue her, and nor does the fat and stupid King Charles VII. And so therefore, Jill says, you know what? My feudal oath means nothing. Obviously, my religion means nothing. I'm going to go and rape all the children in Brittany and have a great good time doing it and hopefully attract the attention of Satan so I can, um, uh, you know, make some more uh, money because I've run out of money buying myself my awesome Marshal of France uniform and other uh, legitimate expenses of being the Lord of Brittany. So for the full effect, then, of your entrance, you shouldn't be wearing a Batman costume. You need to be wearing feathery wings. Exactly. I, sh I should be... Um, uh, uh, coming down to the uh, angelic tones of Freddie Mercury or Olivia Newton-John or something to inspire him to, uh, to to move outside himself. But the Batman uh, feel will still come when uh, Gilles Derez rides to her rescue outside Compiègne. I think that'll just be fun. So aside from uh, turning him from uh, evil to good, what are the repercussions of saving Joan of Arc on the timeline? Well, if, if, if she is saved by uh, the Prince of Brittany... One of the repercussions, ironically, is to slightly weaken the throne of France because the Brittany is not turned over to the uh, royal administration of the church as it was after Jill's trial. So there is a large, powerful duchy that, unlike the Burgundians, is uh, proven loyal to the concept of France and that that might, although one hesitates to promise anything, might limit the degree of misery that France is going to get itself into in the next century when it goes through uh, sort of the dress rehearsal for the Thirty Years' War 80 years early and manages to kill a quarter of itself in the French wars of religion. And the notion that the crown of France is not supreme in all those matters might give the Huguenots a little more breathing room to maybe establish uh, a, a county in Aquitaine or... Um, a series of, of, of towns where Protestantism can be practiced in uh, Grenoble or the Cévennes. And the existence of uh, Gilles de Rays, defender of the faith, marshal of France, and beloved of God, uh, might very well be the sort of symbolic action that allows France to sort of exhale just a little bit and stop being as uh, centrifugal as it became, much to its detriment, not only in the wars of religion, when everyone's uh, fighting over the one crown that means anything, but also afterward when they start establishing the absolutist state that prevents them from engaging in the kind of uh, broad-based uh, economic change that England, uh, with a previously centralized monarchy, ironically, is able to do basically as a result of their own civil war having destroyed everything that the um, uh, Angevins tried to build. So, like a lot of time in corporate op operations, this is about saving a lot of lives. Yeah, yeah one hopes. I mean, certainly anything that uh, prevents the uh, wars of religion from going so uh, horribly as they did and also keeps the Huguenots from being expelled from France is, I think, a win-win situation. I don't know that uh, keeping Gilles de Rez on the side of the Lord is what does it, but it certainly... It certainly can't help, and at the very least, I'm saving, you know, several hundred young kids in Brittany, which is nothing to uh, sneeze at. Now, the one negative knock-on effect of saving Joan of Arc is that it's going to uh, kill a lot of great art. Yeah, um, it's going to knock some movies right in the head. Uh, there's a great Leonard Cohen song we're not going to have, and uh, we're not going to have... A, a Morrissey song? Shaw's uh, St. Joan, mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, we're not going to have... Uh, there's a minor verity opera. Uh, but the one that I'm really going to miss is the Carl Dreyer film, uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't love all Dreyer, but that one is uh, very powerful and compact and has the uh, pacing of the era that it was made in. So the very, very slow pacing of his silent films. And it features an, an incredible uh, lead performance and also has an appearance by the uh, notedly, uh, visionary and or uh, crazy or uh, well not and or uh, and, and Antoinette Artaud who we will uh, later get to when we start talking about uh, Dreams Hounds of Paris because uh, he is a possible character that you can play in that book. Yeah so so yeah you you do lose Dreyer which is a shame but much like um, my uh, making sure that uh, Shakespeare still writes The Tempest when I fixed uh, the Jamestown colony maybe we can you know squirrel away a print or two in the Time Machine headquarters and bring it out as a alternate history. And if Dreyer's Joan of Arc film becomes a seminal piece of art in the alternate history historical film genre, 
maybe that will uh, give us even more promising artworks as we go forward. And, you know, D.W. Griffith gets to make his uh, South Winds at Gettysburg movie, and uh, Lenny Riefenstahl has a real second coming after 1945 making uh, 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 Operation Sea Lion films. Um, so, is there anything uh, more we need to uh, cover about your changes to the uh, to the timeline? Did you? Is there a question that you want to have answered uh, about our own timeline before you start uh, rectifying it on your arrival? Well, I, the, the 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 real interesting question that I always have with Joan of Arc is to what extent? Sh- and th- this is a question that is raised, and it's really tied in with French politics. It's really tied in with historiography. It's tied in with anti clericalism. The question is to what extent is uh, Joan just a peasant girl made good in the sort of uh, rags-to-riches, golly, I've got a sword, I can beat the hated English, and to what extent is she, does she have that martial training? Does she have, you know, why does this peasant girl get to lead the armies of France? And obviously the uh, classical answer is, because God said so, dummy, it's a miracle. And the notion that God spends the last miracle of the historical era preventing France from being run by the English just never seemed to make a lot of sense to me. So I, I, I don't know if I answer that uh, dilemma by saving her life with or without Gilles Duress, but I think it's the, it's the sort of thing that I would keep an eye out and, and want to know more about. God is just trying to preserve the uh, dessert pudding dichotomy. That, that could be. That God uh, likes his pudding and wants to make sure that, um, uh, that it happens. And maybe by preserving France, he creates America. Perhaps it's one of those bank shots that God's so fond of. Well, I think uh, once again that you have well traversed the timeline and we can uh, slowly rev down the motors on Ken's time machine and uh, prepare ourselves for next week's podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Luxuriate in the white space at kennethrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.